All right, good morning. You just make your way back to your seats. And if you'll remain standing, we're going to have the authority of God's word. We're going to read the passage for today. Genesis 1, we're going to start in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to all kinds, according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day and read the words in bold on your uh, bulletin there. Lord stands forever. Amen. All right, if you guys will just have a seat. We're going to get started. Um, For those of you that aren't new to Redstone, my name's Gary Ellis. I'm one of the next-gen guys, as they call us. Uh, We get to preach every summer, and uh, for some reason, every summer is Old Testament summer, so we get to go through some really fun passages. Last year, we did the feast, and that was a very interesting experience Uh, I have to say, I love the challenge though. I love being able to learn about pieces of God's word that I've never really known much about and today isn't any different. So welcome this morning, welcome to Redstone and uh, just have a little uh, mercy on me this morning. I'm pretty nervous, heart's racing, probably about 170, I haven't checked, but uh, it definitely feels like my neck's about to explode and I'm sweating profusely. So so just smile at me real weird if I make eye contact. It'll, it'll, I love awkward humor, so it'll help me out. All right. So this sermon was a lot of fun. Yeah, Cody's got it already. You're being a distraction though. Um, so this sermon was a lot of fun. Uh, learning about Genesis. Um, Genesis is one of those things where, oh, we know the, the account of creation. We know that God made the birds and the trees and the land and the seas and the stars and the moon. And that sounds like a good start to a song there. Maybe I need to write that down. But anyways, we, we know the narrative, right? But the unique thing about this summer has been able to look at each day of creation and looking at each day's purpose and each thing that God created has a purpose. And that's what's been shocking to me is just seeing the character of God and the goodness of God throughout all of that. And there's this scarlet thread that just leads straight into Jesus. You know, when Jesus gets here and he comes and he just reaffirms everything that we know about creation. And we'll see a lot of that today. Um, but before we, uh, before we jump in, I kind of want to share something that really 
hit close to home for me, especially pertaining to this passage when it comes to being created in God's image and, and he created male and female. And I have a family member uh, who I grew up with. Uh, we were very close and um, this family member was born a male. He was born a man and we grew up sharing things, experiences, memories, um, toys, whatever that may be. And one day he approaches me and my wife and he says, I don't believe that I'm an, any longer a male. I wanna be a female. And if you don't wanna support this or be a part of it, then we, then I don't want you in my life. Like I just, just don't wanna deal with it. I don't wanna hear any objections to it whatsoever. So it kind of put me and my wife in a little bit of a weird place. Cause we're like, well, we don't really wanna affirm this because it would directly go against something that we uh, believe very dearly and that God had purpose in it. Um, but uh, over the years, we've had a lot of opportunities to uh, stay in his life and to love him and serve him and, and be a part of each stage. And so that, that kind of just, I'll tell more about that later, but I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that, how this passage really personally impacted me and showed me that when we denounce the Imago Dei, that's what we would call, it's Latin for made in his image. When we get rid of that, the end result for humanity is catastrophic anything can happen. You've got people these days that think they're animals. You've got, you, you just look through scripture, you see cults and you see gods here and there. And it takes this order that God put into creation and it reverses all of it and it kind of implodes and it causes this chaos that no one can keep up with. If you want to see what I'm talking about, just go to TikTok for an hour and just look at gender videos. These folks are so confused. I'm confused at the end of it. I'm like, what are you saying? I don't understand a word that you're saying. And we see this. This is what happens when humanity forgets its genesis, when humanity forgets its origin. So my hope today is that by the end of this, that all of us would be better equipped, more comfortable, and more emboldened to have conversations with folks that are not only just doing that, but I mean, when you forget the Imago Dei, you see, you know, cheating and corruption, uh, murder, like all of these things, because the sacredness of the human life is, is gone. It's erased. And so my hope is that we will be emboldened. We'll have some courage to stand firm in the truth of God's word, because on its own, it will stand. And as we know, any honest person out there that looks at science and biology and all of that just affirms what God's word has said from the very beginning. It's undeniable. It's an undeniable truth. So I got three questions that I want us to kind of keep at the forefront of our mind as we go through the passage today. What would it look like if every person on the earth knew that they were created in the image of God? What would that look like? What does the reality of that mean for us personally? How would it change the very way that we live our lives? What happens to humanity though, if Imago Dei is rejected and thrown out and not an essential part of how humans exist? For me, something I learned from this passage was a person will never truly understand their, their true purpose or existence until they comprehend their own genesis. To truly understand your own value and the sacredness of your own life, you must understand that humanity exists in itself in the image of our creator. He is the source of our life, our worth, and our purpose. He alone is the only thing we have 
to get anything from life in. Without God, life is just this empty chasm of chaos and suffering and disorder and confusion. He is the source of everything that we need. But before we move forward, I wanna talk a little bit about the history of Genesis. What is the audience that's reading this? Why did Moses write this? Well, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament that would be called the Pentateuch in Judaism. And it was post-Egyptian slavery. So it's after the Israelites were removed from Egypt, God led them out of Egypt through Moses. And let me tell you a little bit about the everyday life for an Egyptian. There were over 2000 gods in Egypt, 2000. And each of those gods normally had their own cult, their own temple, and they are worshiped per region. So if you wanted good crops, but the God that gave you good crops was 6,000 miles away, you better have a very healthy camel. That's all I have to say because you're not gonna have a, a very vibrant garden if you couldn't get to that temple and worship, right? So it was very, can you imagine living that kind of stressful life of like, well, I've gotta go here and worship. And then wait a minute, I, I, we, want, we want a baby. So I've gotta go to this fertility temple. I gotta worship here for over the, the temple for childbirth. And then I've gotta go here and worship for, since I'm going to war, I've gotta worship, make sure I come back alive. Like this is what happens when the one and only God and Imago Day is rejected. And we see gods that were over every part of life in Egypt. We even have one that was named Bess. And Bess was worshiped by the men and women both went to the temple and the women would wear men's clothes and the men would wear women's clothes. And depending on what day of the week it was, Bess was also, who was, who was a male God, was referred to Hamareth, who was a female God. And so you could never keep up with these things because they were always shifting. There was nothing steady, nothing set, nothing stable. And so the Egyptians or the, uh, the Israelites, when they left Egypt, they're probably asking themselves, is there really only one God? Is he, is he benevolent? Are we gonna have, be able to feed our families? Are we gonna have crops? Uh, are the, what about the Egyptians God, Egyptian gods? Are they mad at us? Are they gonna come after us and hunt us down? Is this God that rescued us, is he still here? Are we alone? What do we have to do to please him? Should we worship the sun or worship the moon like the Egyptians? Or should we worship like the Canaanites who are now nearby to us? Is the Egyptian story of how the world was created, is that true? See, the theological controversy in Moses' day wasn't about Trinitarianism or Unitarianism. It was the controversy between a one self-existent sovereign God and many limited, capricious, often wicked gods. It's, is, there, is there one God or are there many? That was the question. And we see this in Exodus 23, verses 24 and 33, says, you must not worship the gods of these nations or serve them in any way or imitate their evil practices. Instead, you must utterly destroy them and smash their sacred pillars. If you serve their gods, you will be caught in the trap of idolatry. So anything that does not come from or go with or go to in a holy manner to God, our creator is a trap. As Admiral Akbar would say, it's a trap. Don't believe it. God is, this is, this is an act of grace and mercy on God's part. Don't give into it. Don't adopt any of their practices. Don't say, well, if we took that and like relabeled it, we could do it. Don't adopt their practices because God says it's a trap. You'll get caught in it. And then everything will be thrown into chaos. So in verse 26, it says, uh, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. When God says, let us make man, this word is Elohim. 
and it's a plural word, and it's as if God is saying to himself within the Trinity, let us make man. And I'll talk a little bit more about this statement, let us, because the language here is very neat and very cool. Because up till now, creation was manifested just with saying God was speaking, let the earth bring forth animals and plants and vegetation and let the seas and the land be separated. But this time it's more of a consultation. God is excited. He said, all right, I've had this in the forefront of my mind with every detail I've made, all the plants, the ocean, the mountains that they'll once, once gaze upon and they'll see that it'll be a picture of my majesty and how big I am. It's, it's the crescendo, it's the final piece. It's God, let us begin. Let us start, let us make man. God is taking a particular delight in creating humanity here. Uh, Matthew Henry says in his commentary, as he's kind of like reimagining re re what God is saying, God is saying, let us make man for whose sake the rest of the creatures were made. This is a work we must take into our own hands. In the former, he speaks as having one authority. In this one as having great affection. For his delights were with the sons of men. Gosh, if that doesn't make you feel just loved and valued and that you have a dignity as a human being, I honestly don't know what else we could say. See, there's this unique thing with, with male and female when God made man is it's an intersect between the earth and heaven. Man was brought forth from the earth, from the clay, but then God breathed into man. And so there's this link between heaven and earth. God himself not only undertakes to make man, but he's pleased to express himself through man. This passage confirms what all of us at some point have felt in our lives, that we're not just some biological scientific accident that happened because this soup intermingled with this soup and then a bang happened and then blah, 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 blah. Here's a blob a million years later, you went from having one eye to two eyes and now you have two lines. That's not. We know deep down that that's not what happened. Because when we look at the rest of creation, we went to the Knoxville Zoo a while back and I was looking at uh, the apes and I was thinking, I was like, man, it's really peculiar like how like just kind of chill they are and they hang out and they just pick food off the ground. I mean, they have like these human-esque qualities in the way they move, but they can't talk. I'm sure he doesn't get up and be like, hmm, I wonder why I'm an ape. I wonder what my purpose is today. Oh, bamboo, you know, right? But humans get up and they say, what's my purpose today? What am I worth? Why am I here? Who created me, right? Evolution says that we're just an end result of a random process of events. But creation says we are the pinnacle result of an intentional work driven by love. If we have no divine origin, evolution says we are just an end result of a random process of events. Creation says we are the pinnacle result of an intentional work driven by love. The argument today is that man has no divine origin. And if we have no divine origin, then they make the argument that we're just a little bit higher form of an animal, which I would argue that a lot of human beings act like that. I have a son that's just a little older than a year old. He sometimes acts like a little wild animal. But the irony is that 
we think that as human beings, the higher we get in our thinking that we'll bring order, but really our higher thinking, as I mentioned with the TikTok videos later, it just brings chaos. It just confuses people. The last two years have done nothing but bring confusion to the, confusion to the whole world. Do we trust medicine? Do we like medicine? Should we go to the hospital? Should we not go to the hospital? Do we go out? Do we wear a mask? Do we not wear a mask? Right? There's all of this confusion and God comes in in the middle of that, just like in the beginning of Genesis and brings order to the chaos. See, secular ontology, which is the study of, of being, says that humans are just blank canvases. We don't, have, we don't have any kind of fixed identity or stable purpose. We could be whoever or whatever we want to be according to how we feel. Our ethics are subjective. Our morals are subjective. Our code of conduct is subjective to how we feel on any given, given day of the week. What happens when we do this though? We degrade ourselves to nothing more than creatures driven by raw instinct, compulsive passions, and reactive emotion. It, we, we're, we're inevitably creating chaos. And if you're not convinced yet that our origin matters, then let's just look at when we meet somebody new, we ask them, where are you from and what do you do, right? That's usually the first question, unless you're weird and ask immediately, you know, what kind of toilet paper do you prefer to buy? That's really strange, you probably shouldn't do that. Uh, could be a good conversation, I don't know. But, and, then, and then if somebody says, well, I'm from here, then you'll be like, well, that tells me all I need to know. <laughs> like those Kentucky and West Virginia jokes, they never get old, right? So our origin matters, even in the way that we interact with each other, right? If somebody says that there's some South Africa, there's a given set of culture, uh, beliefs, you know, uh, rituals that come with that. And it's the same with us. The Imago Dei comes with a set of realities and truths and expectations of what that means for humanity. John Calvin said, no man can survey himself without forthwith turning his thoughts toward God in whom he lives and moves. Because it is perfectly obvious that the endowments which we possess cannot possibly be from ourselves, that our very being is nothing less than the sustenance in God alone. See, knowing our origins tells us what we are and what we are defines who we are. Who we are tells us what our purpose is. Let me explain it this way. If a football player went out on the field with a blank jersey, just a plain jersey, stood in the middle of the field of a game, didn't know what team he's on or what position he played, tell me that probably wouldn't be a little chaotic, right? You've got this guy just running back and forth, like trying to catch the ball, running the other side, doing pull-ups on the goal. Like, he has, no, he has no direction, no anchor, no nothing, right? And it's the same when the Imago Dei is missing in humanity. So what does this term image and likeness mean? I've, I've read that and I was kind of like, is that saying two things or the same thing? And then we looked, I looked at the Hebrew and I was like, oh, it's kind of this compounding statement where it's like, it's good, but it's very good. And it's God saying, in our image, after our likeness. So it's saying, he will, he will live and breathe in the way that I move and breathe myself. Man will be spirit and also body. Now we know that God doesn't have a body except Christ alone, but Christ is this picture of what the intersect between heaven and earth is supposed to look like. Fully God, fully man, Live that out. Christ is our picture of what a Mago day really looks like from day to day. See, mankind wasn't fashioned in the likeness or nature of any creatures that preceded him. God 
breathed into him. See, all creatures experience the breath of life. We all live in an atmosphere. We breathe oxygen. We exhale carbon. Uh, is it dioxide? Is that, is that right? Okay, I just didn't want to speak as if an uh, expert on that. Um, it's been a long time since I took uh, science. But anyways, but the difference is that we find in G Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that God fashioned man's nostrils just the way to where he could breathe into him. See, my dog is a very happy dog. She gets up every day. She's like, ooh, food. Let's do that first. And she goes outside. She uses the bathroom. She comes back in. She follows me around until I go to work. My dog, I love my dog, but my dog doesn't have a soul. I can't evangelize my dog. I know there's videos out there of dogs kneeling before they eat their bowl of food. That's really cute and all. But man has this, mankind has this unique experience with God. And he's unlike any other creatures that preceded him in creation. These qualities distinguish man from the rest of creation. We wake up and have the ability to question our very existence, like I said earlier, our purpose. We ask, who created us? How were we created? And why are we here? See, animals are conscious, but human beings are God conscious. That's the difference. My dog wakes up and is aware of her surroundings. We wake up, not only are we aware of our surroundings, we're aware that something's different about us. And any human being that doesn't say that is probably found to be a liar sooner or later. See, we, we can't even resist the Imago Dei in the way that we create things. We create dramas that have this good and evil tension. We write stories that have elements of redemption with heroes. We write love stories of reconciliation and, and we love a good love story, right? Who looks, to, looks forward to Hallmark around Christmas time, right? I mean, they're basically all the same movie. You know the plot like two minutes in, but you don't care, you still watch it anyways. You know, even man is trying to create sentient life through AI. We fashion things after our own likeness. When you go out to your car today, it has two headlights and a grill. It breathes through the grill, gazes through the headlights, right? We fashion things after ourselves. We can't help but do it. We image our creators in the most smallest ways. How many of you guys ever played Sims, the computer game? It was so satisfying. You build a house, you do the landscaping, you give the people inside food to eat, they have a job, like you're basically playing God. But it was so satisfying, right? Even to that point, we can't help but image God. We relentlessly build, we create, we produce, we seek to subdue the earth, but our pursuits are ultimately broken in so many ways apart from Jesus Christ. Then we get to this interesting statement where the rest of it is set apart, where God makes man. And it says he created them male and female. And this stands out. If you read this, just a cursory reading, you will notice that this stands out where it starts from the rest of creation because it says all of it up to this point is according to its kind. But this is not found here in this passage. Why is that? Well, I'll say that family history, tribal history, communal history, all of those things are very important. But at the end of the day, whether you live in Asia, America, South America, Alaska, we all have the same origin, this same origin. But broken human nature leads us to have favorites. 
in a prejudicial manner. We collect in cliques and tribes and we base our relations to sometimes even to the point of being sinful on things such as skin color, country, hobbies, social classes, culture, and so much more. And we divide ourselves. We even see this in the church. We've got ethnic type churches where they're divided, yet we worship the same God. To me, that just confounds me. I don't understand that. Because I love going and experiencing other cultures because I always learn so much. Americans don't do everything right. I hope you guys are okay with hearing that, but we don't have everything figured out, right? We can learn a lot from other places around the world and other cultures. But this would have been striking to Israel because they just came from a place where they were enslaved. I mean, they were probably thought less than the gods that were most often animal-human hybrids and yet they were, they, were, they were beaten and tortured and starved and enslaved. And it would have been a striking notion for them to read this and say, wait a minute, those people that treated us like that come from the same place we come from? Are you serious? See, God didn't breathe into the oxens, the lions, the lizards, the bears, the bears, but into the nostrils of man. He breathed into man. He gave him a soul. We are unique. And Owen Strawn says, you can only understand man if you understand God. If you do not start with God, you'll never comprehend man. The world is trying to figure out why we're here. What's my purpose? And we, figure, we often relate our purpose. If you talk to men, because this is how men usually identify themselves. They get a lot of identity from their work. When men go to gatherings, they're like, hey, what do you do, man? It's like, well, I do taxes. Oh, I'm not talking to you. What do you do, man? I fly fish. All right, we're going to have a conversation, right? So we, that's the, literally the, almost always the first thing we ask ourselves. And it's really uncomfortable. It's like, how's your heart, bro? And it's like, oh, my God. Can we get ease into this a little bit? Let's, let's just take this slow. Let's talk about a hobby first. But God makes it clear here, though, too, that he differentiates human beings in a much different way. We all know they're male and female oxen, but why is God making the point here to say he made them male and female? You know what the Hebrew word is for male and female? Does anybody want to guess? It's male and female. There's no trickery here in the language, but still yet some people try to twist it and make it into something that it's not. And the reason that it's not stated we were mating according to their kind is because we were made according to his kind. We are made in his image. We were also the only ones, like I said, differentiated by sexuality because it's essential to God's plan for humanity. The first reason being that it was not good for man to be alone. See, men and women complement each other in a way within marriage that, you know, two guys hanging out can't display. Two women hanging out can't display. The other reason is to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. If we abolish the Imago Dei, then that leads us to abolish the very next statement of male and female and God-sanctioned marriage. If we do that, we'll go extinct because every person in here was born from a woman. Every single person sitting here today came from a woman. There's a... A lot of culture says that the Bible actually doesn't speak to something that we're experiencing today, which is the transgender movement. 
or transvestitism or drag queens or things of that nature. And I'm sure everybody in here maybe feels a little uncomfortable because culture has made it to where we can't talk about these things. We can't debate them. We can't discuss them. We can't reason about it. And there's this little verse later in Deuteronomy, which Moses also wrote. In uh, verse 20, or chapter 22, verse 5, it says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God, or it's detestable in God's sight. Now, there's, this has been twisted to say that women can't wear pants to church, stuff like that, but that's not the spirit of this statute or this precept. Because we have two things. Everybody can know the letter of the law, like the Pharisees, but you gotta have it balanced with the spirit of the law and you gotta understand what the intent of that law was. And the intent of this law was that God was prohibiting an intentional blurring of the difference between men and women. If you look at most multi-God uh, cultures, there's always a fertility cult. And often in those fertility cults, men would dress up like women and they would prostitute themselves to other men at the temple. And we see this, right? And it's not just in the worship realm, it's also in the fact that it violates a God-sanctioned institute, which we call marriage. You can't fill the earth and subdue it if there's not male and female. It's impossible. It's biologically, scientifically impossible for that commission to be fulfilled. Jesus restated this when he's talking to the Pharisees about uh, divorce and marriage. He says, uh, when they asked him about divorce, he says, uh, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Because the argument always is when you're trying to justify something that doesn't align with scripture is like, well, Jesus didn't say it in the red letters. Well, the whole Bible really should be written in red letters, right? Because John makes it pretty clear that Jesus was there from the beginning. He was there when all of this was taking place. This is all things were made through him, for him, Right? So we know that. And some people even try to make a false notion about this passage that before Eve was created, Adam was this androgynous being, this bisexual being that consisted of both sexual organs. And all of a sudden God, like, like an amoeba, just cut him in half. And then here's woman and here's man. And there are people that make argument, but there's no basis for this bizarre interpretation of the text. God left no room to argue for humans can be categorized here and separated here. He was pretty clear. So then we see as he created male and female, then he goes on to bless them and give them purpose. And in verse 28, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on earth. He blessed their union. He told them to be fruitful and multiply. To deny this reality, like I said, well, and ultimately, not fulfill the command we have to fill the earth. Now, I know some people in this room are single, okay? God didn't call every human being to get married and fill the earth, right? Because there are a lot of biblical heroes that were never married and they imaged God in a powerful way. So I want to honor you today and just say that it's an honorable and a meaningful and very joy joyful thing to answer the call of a life of singleness and serve the bride of Christ. You can image God without marriage. You do not have to have a spouse to image God, but it still is very important that we acknowledge the distinction between male and female. 
And as God gave him this purpose, it really mirrors what we see in the New Testament where um, it talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are ambassadors. And this word ambassador is, very, is a very unique word. If I was an ambassador for the U.S., um, I'd wear a suit and I would have an, a lapel pin of an American flag. And when I go to the table, I would bring the authority of the, of, uh, the U.S. with me and I would represent our colors by my, the flag. That's the primary way that we image God is we represent his authority and his rule and reign as we exist on earth. It's just like the prodigal. When the prodigal came back home, what was the first thing that the dad gave him? He gave him a cloak that probably had family colors on it and a ring. And in that day and time, the ring had a family insignia on it. And when they would write letters, they'd pour wax on the silver letter and they would put the insignia in the wax, and that represented the authority of that family. It's the same with us. We represent God in this world. Then we see that God gives good gifts. God knew somewhere way back when in Genesis that a coffee plant would exist <laughs> and that some person out there would figure out that there's a nice little pit in that coffee cherry and that you could grind that, you could roast that pit and grind it up and pour hot water over it and it would give us the sweet nectar that we call coffee. Now, I don't know who made that coffee this morning, but in the most Christian sense word possible, we need to fire that person because it's terrible. <laughs> Just joking. It was, it was me. I brought the coffee. Um, but this is what I'm saying is, is God gives Adam and Eve the whole earth. When we look at the mountains, when we even when we eat a crappy Waffle House steak, we can glorify God. Even though the cook may have got it a little wrong, we can be thankful for that cow that gave its life so that we could enjoy about a 10 minute meal. Poor existence, but okay. Um, you know, they, cows live like 15 years, I guess, and then they, you know, die and then you get 15 minutes of enjoyment. So it's, it's weird to me, but anyways, so goes the circle of life. But anyways, when we, we can enjoy creation, we can eat to the glory of God, amen, right? We can, we can make memories, we can remember those. We, when we get older, we can recall precious moments. We'd be hard pressed to find another creature on earth that can do such things. And then God declares, behold, it is good. It is good, it is very good. God is expressing delight in his creation. Most importantly, delight in us. See, we cannot understand our purpose, our meaning, and our worth without understanding our origin. If you want to understand the reason something was made, you have to consult the creator. I have two cars at home, two old cars, and I have a, a shop manual for both of them. Because when I, when I get in there, I see parts and bolts and nuts and all kinds of stuff, and I'm like, well, what is that for? I don't know what the purpose of that part is unless I open that manual. And who created that part? The person that wrote the manual, the person that created that part. It's the same with humanity. We have the manual. We know why we're here. We know what our purpose is. It's undeniable. We see this echoed in the New Testament after Pentecost. When, before, or I'm sorry, before Pentecost, when Jesus ascends, when he gives us the great commission, it's almost the exact same thing. Go unto all nations. Where do nations exist? All the world, right? Preaching the gospel, proclaiming Jesus, proclaiming the good news making disciples. 
What is making disciples mean? These were, we're overcoming evil. We're subduing the chaos and bringing order to the world. Is that not beautiful? That Jesus came and is slowly and surely through each and every one of us setting what is wrong to be made right, renewing all things. See, we take things that are simple like male and female and we make them complex and inevitably end up becoming this weird religious Gnostic virtue in our culture where it's like you're a higher, more religious person the more you know about those things. When we get rid of the Imago Dei, common things will become sacred and sacred things will become common. If we reject the lines of male and female and they become blurred, humanity will do unspeakable things to themselves and others in the form of sexual acts and bodily harm. We see this in the movement that if you boiled the essence of the pride movement and transgenderism and all of these other things that exist in the world today, the main purpose of it is to find purpose and worth and pleasure but all of that apart from God. If we reject the Imago Dei, animals and creation will become equally sacred and we will give the same rights to animals as we do human beings. This is gonna stomp on some toes, but it's weird to me that we will celebrate a no-kill animal shelter, but then our culture weeps and gnashes their teeth when an abortion clinic shuts down. That's a really strange thing to me. Because if my son and my dog was in the road, who do you think I would risk my life to save more? My son. This is what happens when a Mago Day is denied. You have 1930s Germany. You have modern day China. It's really easy for us to murder and ridicule and hate each other when we don't realize that we have the same origin and we have an almighty God that we image. It's really easy to go down that road. If the Imago Dei is rejected, that what's supposed to be subdued will be the subduer. Man will serve creation instead of creation serving man. And the sad truth is the, the biggest part of our culture doesn't live out Imago Dei, they live out Imago Me. We, we obliterate other people at, at the point of, even in my own story, before I met Christ, I hoard myself out all the time because I was looking for love and I would do it at the cost of another person. That is what happens. And you know what changed that? Realizing that women were made in the image of God and that unless I was married to one, they were to be seen as my sister in Christ. Every person in here, we are all of the family of God. It's easy to subjugate a people when they don't know what they're worth or who they are. You will enslave yourself to something if you don't know what you're worth or who you are. We see this in Romans 1 where it says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see how everything gets flipped backwards? Where it's like instead of creation leading up to humanity, humanity then serves it backwards. That's why you end up with all of these cult temples and these gods that they go and serve and worship and they throw themselves at the feet at because everything's thrown out of order. It's spun backwards. 
And it says, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, that all manner of unrighteousness filled their lives. Every, everything was just thrown into chaos. And that's why when I look at my relative, I can have extreme compassion on him and love him without compromising myself in that. Prime example, we, have, we had a family gathering a while back and it's very uncomfortable. It's not comfortable to be around him. Um, he's married to a woman. They practice witchcraft. It's, it's, it's just very, very dark place for them to live in. And they segregated themselves from the rest of the family. And they went and sat at a table. It was about 40 yards away from everyone else. So me and my wife made an effort to take my son over there. And we sat and we engaged with them because I wanted them to know that you're made in the image of God. And because of that, I have the hope of Christ. And I will hope one day that you will surrender your life to him. And it, the Imago Day empowers us to see each other in a much different way. It allows us to be filled with the grace and the power and the might of God to love people in a radical way. Like people that are living in that realm of culture, they need to be here among us in these seats to hear these things that we preach and proclaim and live out every day. I'll leave you with this and then we'll talk about the application is we are an expression of God's creativity while simultaneously an impression of his identity. We are an expression of God's creativity while simultaneously an impression of his identity. This should leave us filled with a worshipfulness, a thankfulness and an awe. It should throw us in a devotional moment just saying, God, how mighty you are. You are the expert on human flourishing. This should lead us to share the good news, engage people in, this, in these topics. We should talk with them. We should not shy away from it. We should give a defense for human life. We have to. We have to live in every circle of culture and world. That means we have to be engaged in politics because politics is shaping culture more than anything else right now. And politics takes what moral issues are and makes them a political issue. And then they stand in front of them and say, you can't talk about this because it's not a moral issue. It's a political issue. It's my right to destroy another human life. It's my right to destroy my own body. We have to be in those circles because of evil loves a vacuum. If there are no believers in our government, if there's no believers in our military or in our workforces or anywhere else, what's gonna fill those spaces? Not the reason of God, I can tell you that. We have to wake up, folks. We have to engage our culture. We can't end up like the proverbial Mennonites or Amish people and just back away and just say, we'll have this over here. It's too messy. I can't get involved in that. It's too awkward. It feels disgusting. I don't want to, no, no. That's a good instinct to have because it tells you something's not right, but that shouldn't stop you from reaching those people. We'll go back to the first question. If every person knew that they were created in the image of God, they would have a much more vibrant, joyful, free life in Jesus Christ. Our communities would thrive. Families would be healed. But most importantly, people would know that they were made with a purpose, intrinsic value, dignity, given to them from a benevolent and almighty God. When that truth defines our lives, not even sin will have dominion over us. So go therefore and make disciples 
of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, who was given all authority, that was his commission to us. I'll leave you with this as just kind of a devotional moment. I want to read Psalm 139. If if you'll just kind of close your eyes and, and like let me speak the word over you and just realize how important and blessed and cherished you are by God. In Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night as bright as day for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. And when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me at my unformed substance and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none, none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Amen. We always have a response to God's word. And maybe today that part of that response is we need to repent from coddling parts of culture that we're uncomfortable with because we don't want to confront it. Or maybe we need to repent of just the sin of omission of not doing anything at all, just kind of like living in our own bubble. Or maybe that's a thankfulness on top of that of just, God, thank you for having mercy on me because I have let you down. So part of that response is we, ta- we come to the table and we recognize and we do in remembrance, we, we remember Jesus and we remember his sacrifice. We remember how great of a cost heaven gave so that we may be united, so that heaven may be found in us once again. And that link between heaven and earth may be restored. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. And then he took the cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins. And the thing that always strikes me most about communion is Jesus said this with a knowing betrayer in his midst. So just know that even as you go out to make disciples, you may too may be betrayed and you may have to dust your feet, but that shouldn't stop us from going in the first place. So uh, let me pray real quick and then we'll take communion. And we've got a table in the back uh, on the right and the left. And then I've got one over here and I'll, I'll be up here to give you an out. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you so much, Lord, for the immense amount of grace and mercy that you've shown humanity because in all your glory and your holiness, you have the, you have the right, Lord, 
you would be just to just wipe us out, but you haven't. You have shown compassion. And Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that was given on the cross for us. And we gladly receive that today by taking a moment to remember you. In Jesus' name, amen.